Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. This week, our guest is Mayuk Sen, an award-winning food journalist. He's just published his first book, Tastemakers, which profiles seven pioneering immigrant women who transformed American food and culture during the second half of the 20th century. Two of the women profiled are Elena Zelieta, a Mexican-born blind chef who became a best-selling cookbook author, restaurateur, and food entrepreneur, and Chao Yang Buwei, a Chinese-born physician whose Chinese cookbooks became a form of food diplomacy in the United States for more than 30 years from the 1940s through the 1970s. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. Welcome to my kitchen. I'm going to make a pickled tuna fish for you today. Is that you, Billy? Yes, Mother. Well, honey, how did the uh, fishing come? Let's look, let's look. What have you? Oh, how wonderful. You mean, darling, do you think that this is all you got? Yes, ma'am. Oh, no, darling, let me see. Oh, darling, that is. Oh, Billy. My husband, that's Elena Zelayeta from a television program that she was involved with uh, for uh, a while in California. She's one of seven biographies in your new book, Tastemakers. Tell me about your project. Absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so my book, uh, Tastemakers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America, is a group biography of seven different cookbook authors, chefs, uh, cooking teachers who came to America uh, from the post-war era onward and through their work really changed the way that Americans cook and eat and think about food today. Yet what I wanted to do was uh, restore dignity to their stories because I found that so many of these women had not been sufficiently honored by American cultural memory in the same way that other more well-known figures like, say, Julia Child may have. So that my book is my attempt to correct the record in some way. You write in the beginning that you started out with the project wanting to tell the story of immigration in America through the prism of food. What did you end up with? Uh, I ended up with something uh, quite <laughs> a bit more nuanced, I would say, uh, in the sense that you know, as I spent time really writing the book, uh, which took me about three years because I sold it in late 2018, I realized that it was perhaps a bit more of a critique of American capitalism, or at least what it means to belong to a marginalized community and live under American capitalism and try to make a living while also attempting to express yourself creatively. That is a struggle that I face in my own work, and I saw that same struggle in the stories of each of these women who 
came to America and really tried to triumph in an industry that was not necessarily designed to accommodate them. Your own family has an immigrant story. What is it? Yeah, so uh, I'm the child of two immigrants from the Indian state of West Bengal. And uh, my late father, who unfortunately passed away in 2017, uh, you know, he had an arranged marriage to my mother, uh, who is still alive, and she's my best friend. And <laughs> she definitely influenced the way that I wrote this book. Uh, but they came to America together in the early 1980s. Uh, my father before that had uh, you know, been studying in New Jersey at Rutgers uh, through the 70s, uh, yet they both came together in the 80s after getting married in India. And they settled in New Jersey, which is where I was born in 1992. And as I was writing this book, I thought constantly of what their journey must have been like to come to America from India during such a challenging time for Indians in this country. And all the <laughs> steps that they both had to take uh, to acclimate to this new home, especially my mother, she grew up in a village in the Indian state of West Bengal, and she did not grow up speaking English, and uh, she definitely did not have certain class privileges uh, that others might enjoy in this country. So for her to come to America and just completely adopt this new way of life and create uh, you know, a culture in which I could have so many luxuries like I enjoy today, uh, it was astonishing to me. And so I thought so often of her hardships as I was writing this book. You are a food journalist by profession and actually teach the subject at university level. How did you find this path in your career? Uh, it was definitely a jagged path, I will have to say. <laughs> and it was completely unexpected. So I grew up, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer growing up. I had actually grown up wanting to be a film critic. I was that kid who hoarded old issues of Entertainment Weekly like a madman. And I discovered the writings of film critics like Pauline Kael and David Thompson in my teenage years. And I was just so enraptured by their words. And so after encountering that kind of work, I told myself, I want to be a film critic. And that is what I pursued right after I graduated from college in 2014. Yet, you know, I soon realized uh, that it's not exactly easy to make a living as a film critic, or at least it wasn't, uh, you know, seven years ago when I uh, started to try and do it. Uh, so I was working as a freelance writer covering topics like film and television and music uh, right after I graduated college in 2014. Uh, it was basically, I was writing about every aspect of the culture except food. <laughs> uh, and the reason why I avoided food as a topic is because I just never thought that food writing was a viable career path for a person like myself. I had always, for some reason, regarded it as a line of work and domain of rich, straight, white men, people who are so unlike me because I'm a queer person of color and a child of immigrants. And I'm not quite sure what movie kind of lodged this idea in my head. It may have been Mystic Pizza. You know, there's that famous uh, scene near the end where there's that uh, <laughs> a white food critic who comes into the establishment and writes a glowing review. Yet, nevertheless, I really did feel as though food writing did not have place for someone like me. Fast forward to 2016, I... Uh, gets an email out of the blue from an editor at a site called Food52. And they asked me if I'd be interested in joining as a staff writer, someone who can write about food through the broader lens of culture, someone who isn't uh, an avid home cook or a restaurant enthusiast. And I was neither of those things. And I'm still a pretty bad cook. 
<laughs> uh, yet after some, uh, you know, reluctance, I took those meetings, then I took the job. And so that uh, my journey with food writing began uh, in 2016 when I was 24 years old. And I absolutely did not anticipate that it would last this long, nor did I think it would culminate in a book <laughs> or result in a book. I shouldn't say culminate. It's not over quite yet. Um, but here I am. So it was definitely unexpected. And I don't know that I'm the typical person uh, who rises to any degree of prominence uh, in this field. So. And yet you are already a James Beard Award write- winner for writing about food. And I, I wanted to use that as a-, a jump into talking about the food establishment and the era in which these women labored. James Beard was one of them, along with Craig Claiborne, who appears in your book frequently in the chapters, and Julia Child. You call them the gastronomic trinity of the era. What kind of power did these people have over the way Americans ate in the 50s, 60s, 70s? Absolutely. Yes, they were the gastronomic trinity. And I believe that is what the late food writer Molly O'Neill called them uh, in a wonderful 2003 essay for the Columbia Journalism Review. But each of those three figures uh, held tremendous uh, power and sway uh, over American tastes, especially in the 1960s. Uh, Craig Claiborne, in particular, someone you just mentioned, uh, he is someone who had enormous power as a result of the fact that he was at the very top of the masthead of uh, uh, food coverage at the New York Times beginning in, in 1957. And in that post of his, he was really responsible for championing so many of today's stars. And he in particular really uh, you know, celebrated a lot of immigrant female talents, some of whom are in my book. Uh, Marcella Hazan, for example, is a name that I'm sure many American home cooks are familiar with, and he was one of the first people, Craig Claiborne, to really uh, give her a platform in the form of a profile, the New York Times. And through such endorsements, uh, I think that a lot of these women uh, were able to have access to capital and opportunity that may not have otherwise been available to them as a result of who they were, the fact that they were outsiders to this country, or because they belonged to other marginalized communities beyond being just immigrants. Uh, And so that is kind of Claiborne and uh, his part of the equation. And when it comes to James Beard and Julia Child, you know, they didn't quite have, uh, you know, positions like, uh, you know, being the food editor of the New York Times, like Craig Claiborne did, yet they were so well connected to publishers of the era and others who really uh, were gatekeepers uh, in that time that, you know, any sort of alignment with them could open up access to capital and opportunity for these women. And we see that in the story of someone like Marcella Hassan, one of my book subjects, but I won't talk about her too much just yet. <laughs> well, before we, we do a deeper dive into some of the subjects, could you comment about food itself as a yardstick of uh, history and culture in a society? Absolutely. You know, food uh, itself, it's an object that almost all of us consume. And uh, I think that it is uh, very uh, popular and tempting to believe that food unites us and brings all of us together. Uh, I'm a bit skeptical of that notion, yet I do feel as though in narrative terms, food can tell us so much about where a person comes from, the culture that shaped them, the values in which they grew up. I certainly think that holds true of the food that I cook and eat at home. It tells the story of where my parents came from and the conditions under which I grew up. And I believe the same holds true for all of these women and everyone else in this this entire world. And that is why uh, 
I'm so excited by the prospect of writing about food uh, as kind of a window into understanding humanity a bit more. So why did you focus on women? Yes, uh, that is the question, uh, because I realized that uh, I present to this world as a cis man. Uh, so I have always, uh, you know, since my youth, been uh, I've gravitated towards the stories of women so often. I was one of those gay kids who uh, loved Judy Garland, for example, and all those other uh, <laughs> women, actresses in particular, um, who many people may regard as uh, gay or queer icons. And so I never quite understood why it was I had such an affinity with these performers and with these women. Uh, yet, as I was writing this book, a lot of that uh, became clarified for me. Uh, but those are the stories that I feel the most kinship with, because as someone who is a queer person of color, I have faced so much marginalization uh, very acutely, both in my time in this country and in my time in uh, this industry as a food writer, because it is still uh, very white and there are many discriminatory ills that still plague the industry. And when I looked at the stories of so many of these uh, female figures in particular, I was able to better understand how to navigate the many challenges this country and this industry threw at me. And so <laughs> I almost uh, pursued these stories out of kind of a desire to better understand myself and how to face these challenges uh, head on and uh, really overcome these hardships. Uh, beyond that, beyond that kind of a selfish motivation, you could say, I do feel as though America's cultural memory uh, naturally skews away from women in particular, and it is more keen to assign credit to men. And you will see that so often in this book in which the legacies of these women were overwritten uh, by uh, the stature of important men and, uh, uh, you know, great figures who have uh, you know, really uh, entered the American cultural consciousness as uh, the great hooks of America. And I really wanted to push against that. If your thesis is that these seven women helped to revolutionize the way America eats, set the stage for me. What was the American cuisine like in this post-war era? Women were coming into the workforce for the first time. Uh, there was a real emphasis on, on con convenience food. It was the rise of television and mass media. So how did all of that affect what people were eating in that time. Absolutely. You saw a lot of convenience foods, a lot of canned foods, for example. Uh, foods like Chef Boyardee and Rice for example, were really taking off. Uh, so many Americans, at least from my understanding, wanted cheap, quick, easy foods uh, that were not going to require too much labor to get on the table. Yet, in spite of that, uh, what really created room for so many of the women in my book to thrive was an increased appetite for cuisines from around the globe, especially in this more uh, forgiving post-war era, uh, beginning in uh, the mid-1940s. Uh, you saw so many home cooks want to pepper their uh, dinner tables with some global flavor, whether that was Chinese or Mexican or Italian uh, cooking. And that really set the stage for a lot of these women uh, to make an impact through their cookbooks or through hosting television shows, for example, that really reached a lot of American home cooks. Uh, and so I think that is kind of the era in which a lot of these women were working and uh, really allowed them to become celebrities in their time, even if they do not 
remains so today unfairly. Another theme that will be pervasive in all but one chapter is the importance of cookbook publishing to their success. You know, I, I just looked up and, and perhaps not surprising, but during the pandemic, cookbook sales rose 17 percent in this country, uh, which shows that they are enduring, as is our interest in food. Uh, could you comment about the continued importance, even in the digital age, of publishing cookbooks? Absolutely. I mean, uh, cookbooks have meant a great deal to uh, Americans, uh, for so long, uh, especially, you know, beginning around the time of World War II, uh, that's when you see uh, books like Joy of Cooking, for example, which is this tome that so many American home cooks still swear by today, uh, really gain a lot of traction and prominence um, among American home cooks. And I don't believe that they will die out in any way in spite of the threats of the digital age. I think that uh, there is something that is so meditative about the act of cooking and the act of engaging with a cookbook as you cook uh, physically, as opposed to staring at a screen, for example, while you try to uh, cook a recipe at home. And as a result, I really do feel that cookbooks will endure, uh, you know, as time goes on. You actually opened the book with a story of a cookbook published in 1901. Why was that important to your tale? Absolutely. So that book uh, is called The Settlement Cookbook. And uh, I'm sure that uh, many home cooks uh, will be familiar with it because it is still in circulation today and it has gone through many more editions. Uh, yet in the genesis of that book, uh, so it was compiled by a woman named Elizabeth Black Kander, who herself was the child of immigrants from Europe, uh, who came to America and really did a marvelous job in the 1800s of assimilating into the American way. Uh, you know, they adopted the American way of dressing, and they really mastered the language, and so on and so forth. And so uh, Elizabeth Blackhander, in her work as a social worker, uh, she helped a lot of young immigrant women uh, assimilate uh, into the American way of life uh, after they had come from Russia and Eastern Europe. Uh, and she did so as a way to shield them from any sort of discrimination that they might face in their new adoptive home. And she felt as though one way to really make sure they did not face that sort of awful discrimination that was so commonplace in that era was to cook the American way. And so this cookbook was filled with so many so-called American recipes alongside some from Jewish and Eastern European traditions. Yet to me, I thought it was so fascinating that this book that still endures and has so much importance for so many people is essentially a document that champions the idea of assimilation for immigrants, which is something that is completely understandable. Yet I found, you know, in writing and reporting this book that assimilation is not and should not be the only path toward success for immigrants in America. There are other ways for immigrants to make a home in America without necessarily assimilating to this quote unquote American way because the very idea and concept of the American way has shifted so much uh, in over a century since that book came out. And so that is really what I want to show with this book. So we're going to dig into a few, but not all of your seven. So we leave our viewers wanting more of, of your book. But before we get into that, why seven and what were the criteria you used to select them? Oh, seven is a lucky number, and that is the simplest answer I've got for you. That felt appropriate, uh, just expansive enough without being, uh, you know, um, too unruly. I think that if I uh, 
had too wide a cast of characters. Uh, this book would not have felt as compact as I wanted it to feel. Yet there are so many women I wish I could have written about, uh, which kind of gets me to the second part of your question. It was a real challenge and struggle to curate and winnow this list of seven women and figure out which ones I wanted to write about. Uh, one kind of um, criterion that I uh, tried to keep in mind as I was selecting these women is how compelling are their stories in pure narrative terms? Because as someone who came to food writing so unexpectedly without any sort of desire to be a food writer <laughs> you know, early in his life, uh, I saw this problem within food writing, which is that it is so easy for food writers to write for a very specific audience, that audience being a food literate one, uh, that audience of home cooks and restaurant enthusiasts, like I mentioned earlier. And I wanted to make sure that I was capitalizing on the potential for food writing to reach so many more readers beyond that. And so I looked for women who had stories that excited me and might excite someone who isn't necessarily a home cook or restaurant enthusiast to pick up this book. That was kind of the uh, you know, first uh, issue at hand. And then after that, I really had to ask myself, well, what materials are available for me to make these chapters really come to life and sing. And to do that, what I really had to find was women who had recorded their own stories in uh, texts like memoirs, for example, or cookbooks with memoiristic passages, or women who had given a wealth of interviews in their lifetimes, because so many of my subjects are deceased, unfortunately. Uh, women who had given interviews like that uh, in their lifetime that really showed them speaking in their own voices, because I really wanted to understand how these women wanted to present themselves to the world. And then I wanted to reconcile that with however the press, for example, may have rendered them and perhaps misread them. And so those were two things that I kept in mind, yet it was still a struggle. And I regret that there were so many uh, really fascinating figures who were left on the proverbial uh, cutting room floor, yet it is what it is. That is the work of other writers, uh, you know, beyond me and in younger generations to pursue. Well, the oldest story and the first chapter in your book is a Chinese immigrant to the United States, Chow Yang Bu Wei. And uh, you describe America in, in total as having a complicated infatuation with Chinese food. What did you mean by that? Totally. So, uh, <laughs> any historian will know that uh, the late 19th century in particular. Uh, was a time when America had quite a lot of hostility towards Chinese immigrants, and that was really enshrined in such laws as the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, which you know, really barred a lot of uh, Chinese immigrants uh, from even coming to America, especially laborers. Uh, yet in spite of that, uh, so many Americans had quite a large appetite, let's say, uh, for Chinese cooking and Chinese restaurants uh, were absolutely in existence, uh, you know, in that century and they would flourish um, as time went on. And it's not until 1943 when you really start to see substantive repeals to that 1882 exclusion, uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, excuse me. Yet in spite of that, uh, Chinese cooking really endured in the form of restaurants uh, in America during that time. And that was sort of the fray into which uh, someone like uh, Chow Yang Bu Wei was entering because she wrote her first cookbook in 1945 called How to Cook and Eat in Chinese. And it was a runaway success. And I really do feel as though it was just two years after uh, that 1943 uh, 
you know, those repeals of the 1882 Chinese Inclusion Acts when a lot of American home cooks decided that finally, at long last, they were ready to embrace the true complexities of Chinese cooking in the home. Yeah, each chapter, because these are immigrants, there's so many connections with political strife or whatever in their home countries. But hers in particular, you you write about a lot of different immigration laws uh, over uh, the 100 years or so uh, from the Chinese Exclusion Act, the Magnuson Act, as you referenced in 1943, the Refugee Relief Act of 53, which impacted her directly, and then the 1965 immigration law that eliminated quotas bringing more Chinese and others into the United States. The interesting thing about about her is that she was a doctor, a medical doctor. How did she make her way into food? It happened so unexpectedly, uh, and it seemed to be the last thing on her mind in a lot of ways. So she had a flourishing career as a doctor uh, back in China. She had attended medical school in Japan, which, from my understanding, was quite radical for that era, uh, yet... After she wed um, a very famous linguist named uh, Chao Yanren, uh, he had a, an academic job that brought them to America that was quite high profile. Yet, uh, And they came in the early uh, 1920s, I believe it was 1921, when they came to America. And uh, Bu Wei, unfortunately, uh, she did not have a great uh, competent grasp of the English language. And as a result, that limited her possibilities in this new home. She could not find work as a doctor in the same way that she had been able to back in China. And as a result, kind of left her own devices. Uh, You know, what was she left to do except uh, to cook at home? And she found that she really did enjoy cooking so much, especially, uh, you know, cooking the flavors uh, from her youth in China and those that she had encountered on her travels throughout that country. And so that is kind of the unexpected way in which she came to cooking. And it's funny because so many of these women have that sort of wayward path into the industry. After she published How to Cook and Eat in Chinese, uh, she had an, an, a number of important supporters. One of them was Pearl S. Buck, whose book, The Good Earth, won both the Pulitzer and the Nobel Prize in 1938 for literature. What was the connection between the two women? Absolutely. So, uh, Pearl Azebuck uh, was instrumental in publishing uh, How to Cook and Eat in Chinese uh, because she and her husband, whose name I believe was John Walsh, uh, they had uh, their own publishing house that was really devoted to putting out books that would advance American understandings of China in particular. And as a result, when they came across word of uh, Bue's uh, budding uh, cookbook manuscript, they were just completely enthralled, and they really felt as though it had the potential to change American perceptions of Chinese food and Chinese people by extension. And as a result, uh, Pearl Azbuck, she wrote in the opening pages of How to Cook and Eat in Chinese that she felt that Bue herself uh, deserved uh, a Nobel Peace Prize, I believe, for her pioneering efforts in putting uh, these words uh, to paper uh, through writing this cookbook, uh, which I think is <laughs> a sort of hilarious little tidbit. She unfortunately did not win a Nobel like uh, Pearl Asbach herself did. Yeah, I think that that connection uh, to a figure as towering and monumental in her era as Pearl Asbach was really instrumental in uh, allowing uh, Bu Wei to break barriers uh, in a way that she may not have been able to do otherwise. How well-known and popular did her cooking and her cookbooks become in her time? They were quite popular. They went into multiple printings, from my understanding, especially 
you know, in the immediate years uh, following uh, the book's publication in 1945, yet her other efforts were not quite as successful. For example, uh, I believe that uh, Asia Press, which was the imprint that had uh, published um, How to Cook and Eat in Chinese, they wanted to capitalize on the commercial success of uh, How to Cook and Eat in Chinese by publishing in a memoir by Wu Wei herself, which uh, came out in 1947, and it's called Autobiography of a Chinese Woman. Uh, yet it, uh, from my research at least, uh, did not sell nearly as well and did not have that sort of broad appeal to American readers in the way that her cookbook did. Uh, yet that book felt truer to her authentic voice, let's say, than her cookbook did because her cookbook itself had quite a tortured genesis and there were uh, many cooks in the kitchen, no pun intended. Uh, other uh, family members of hers uh, interfered in the writing process, which I believe muffled her voice ultimately. One thing we found in our, our library is a video of President Nixon making his famous 1972 trip to China. We've got some B-roll that we're going to show of that so people can be reminded of that very historic event. What did that trip do to Americans' interest in Chinese food and Chinese culture? Yes, that's a wonderful question. Uh, from my research, uh, I understood that so much American popular interest in Chinese cooking, in particular Chinese restaurants, really flourished in that era. And I don't think it's any coincidence that that very decade after the 1972 visit saw the rise of prominence of so many incredibly important figures uh, in Chinese cooking in America. Uh, there was the late restaurateur Cecilia Chang, for example, uh, who worked in California's Bay Area. There was a cookbook author named Irene Kuo, who wrote an enormously uh, popular in its era a cookbook uh, in 1977 called The Key to Chinese Cooking. In 1982, uh, America saw the uh, the rise of Martin Yan, whose show Yan Can Cook on American public television really captured the American imagination. Uh, so I do believe that uh, Nixon's 1972 visit uh, has a great deal to do with that uh, flourishing interest uh, in the following decade. At that point, Bouet had been in the marketplace for almost 30 years with her book and her, her cooking um, and her introduction to Chinese culture. How much did the new generation of Chinese cooks and chefs owe to the, the ground that she laid? Uh, they owed so much, and they were quite indebted to her work. And some of those figures I just mentioned, they really did state how important uh, Bu Wei's work was. Uh, for example, there was... Um, a really, really uh, wonderful uh, Chinese cookbook author named Grace Xiaochu, who in 1962 wrote a book called The Pleasures of Chinese Cooking, which was another groundbreaking cookbook. And she stated to the press that it was Bu Wei's cookbook that really allowed her to write uh, such a book. And so uh, I would say that Bu Wei uh, definitely blazed a trail for uh, this future generation of Chinese cooks in America to really rise to prominence uh, because her book in 1945 was most likely the most systematically thorough uh, Chinese cookbook uh, in the English language, at least published in America, that had been published. Uh, you know, prior to that, there had been some, you know, A for efforts <laughs> books that had come out that nevertheless were not able to reach audiences in the way that she was able to. So, Next person I wanted to focus on was the one we saw in our opening clip, Elena Zalarieta, born 1897 in Mexico City. What viewers may not have picked up in that opening clip was she was blind. 
Yes, and that is one of the many challenges that she faced in her life. You know, in addition to being an immigrant who was born in Mexico, uh, yet was displaced into San Francisco as a result of the Mexican Revolution, uh, she also lost her sight as an adult. Uh, she also lost her husband uh, to a very, very catastrophic uh, car accident uh, in adulthood. And those twin tragedies really shaped her and resolved her will to create a life for herself uh, that was fulfilling and involved cooking. And so in the 1940s, uh, beginning of the 1940s, excuse me, she became quite popular both in the Bay Area and beyond for being a cookbook author and occasional television host, as our viewers just saw. Uh, and uh, she also dabbled in some restaurant consulting work. And she was a real celebrity chef in her time. Yet, for some reason, her name has not quite had the stamina that her impact really deserves. A couple of things in that chapter that struck me. First of all, you mentioned her family uh, coming to the United States during the Mexican Revolution in 1910. You share this number that that was the third wave of Mexican immigration into California, and 890,000 documented Mexicans fled to the United States during the 10 years of the revolution. Uh, but you also write about the repatriation that happened. Tell me that story. Absolutely. Uh, so the repatriation uh, happened a few decades later, from my understanding, uh, and that was during a very uh, hostile time uh, for a lot of Mexicans who were living in America uh, because so many of them came under fire from white Americans who accused them of lose of uh, taking their jobs essentially uh during this uh really catastrophic uh, economic uh, time for america and as a result the government uh, engaged in this forced repatriation is what some people call it of uh, mexicans uh, back to mexico some of whom from my understanding had never even been and set foot in mexico uh, and so uh it was fascinating that uh, elena herself was uh, seemingly immune to such uh, institutional prejudices of the time. And, you know, reading her memoirs and her cookbooks, there is very little in there about, uh, you know, the discrimination that she may have faced as someone who was a Mexican woman, uh, you know, living in America during that time. Hers is a chapter where Craig Claiborne does play a part. How did he influence the trajectory of her career? Yes, so he is, uh, you know, one of those people who really did champion her uh, in the pages of the New York Times. And uh, he uh, positioned her essentially as uh, America's authority on Mexican cooking. And he lavished so much praise on her cookbooks in the pages of the New York Times. Yet, <laughs> he did the same for another figure in Mexican cooking who now reigns supreme in the American mind. Uh, some American home cooks uh, might be familiar with the name uh, Diana Kennedy. She was a British-born woman, I believe, uh, who uh, went to Mexico and was so fascinated with uh, the foodways of that country that she began to document them quite scrupulously uh, in the form of cookbooks. And I believe her first cookbook came out in 1972. And that was around the time that Elena herself uh, you know, passed away. And that cookbook by Diana Kennedy allowed Kennedy to really usurp uh, whatever position Elena Zelieta had uh, you know, in the previous decades as America's authority on Mexican cooking. And the same words that Craig Claiborne used to describe Elena Zelieta's work with, he now used for Diane Kennedy. And so when we look at Elena Zelieta's uh, story, I think we can see 
quite clearly how American memory functions in the sense that there's usually only room for one figure when it comes to a certain cuisine, especially if that cuisine is a not a part of continental Europe, let's say. And in this case, Diana Kennedy has the great fortune of uh, being that figure for Mexican cooking. One other part of her story I wanted to get on the record here, because it happened after the car crash that killed her husband and, and really does show her determination, was that she and her son w- went together and started a frozen food business, bearing her name. Uh, a woman entrepreneur at, at, at that time. But also, it struck me that it helped to nationalize Mexican cooking, which might have been more regional uh, up until that point. Totally, yes. It was definitely, I would say, um, a daring uh, move for the era, in spite of the fact that, as we were discussing earlier, and that was the time in which uh, frozen foods, convenience foods, and whatnot were really flourishing in America. Uh, usually those were Swanson dinners. They weren't necessarily Mexican foods. So for her to do that uh, on a level beyond the local level uh, was really quite an accomplishment, especially as a female immigrant figure. And there are so many aspects to her story that strike me as really pioneering, which is why it is, I'm flummoxed as to why uh, America does not remember her quite in the way that uh, it should. You say that her legacy should be an ambassador for Mexican cooking at a time when one was needed. Why was it needed at her time? Oh, yes. Well, Mexico is uh, America's southern neighbor. And I truly feel as though we should we should understand of the cooking traditions of uh, our neighbor neighboring countries, especially if people from those neighboring countries have a significant population in America and Mexicans certainly do today. Let's move on to Marcella Hazan. She had a difficult life in Italy during World War II as a child. Uh, Another very well-educated woman has a dual doctorate. How did she get into food? It was also quite unexpected. You see the through line here. Uh, So uh, what happened was she was, uh, you know, she had had a dual doctorate uh, in the natural sciences and biology, I believe, from the University of Ferrara. And then she met a man named Victor Hazan, who loved cooking and he loved food. He was a true gourmand and uh, he brought them to uh, America. And uh, this was in the later half of the 20th century. And when she got to America, she settled in Forest Hills, Queens, I believe. And she had a real tough time acclimating to this new home, especially because she absolutely detested the food that she had in America. You know, there's this one scene in my book where Uh, Her husband took her to a cafe and introduced her to a hamburger, and she was just so appalled uh, by the idea of ketchup and why someone would even want to drown hamburger meat and ketchup. Uh, She hated coffee cake. The list goes on. And it was those circumstances that made her realize that she needed to learn how to cook because there was otherwise not going to be any way for her to survive in America, especially as someone who hadn't uh, quite found a job uh, just yet in her early days uh, in the country. And so as a result, what she did was she began pouring over the cookbooks of uh, a really uh, marvelous um, Italian cookbook author named Ada Boni, uh, who uh, wrote a book in the 1920s that was sort of tome for Italian cooking uh, in Italy and then eventually America. And she found that as she began to cook those recipes, she felt a connection to the Italian home that she missed so much. She could 
picture quite clearly, you know, her family members uh, cooking in the kitchen, uh, you know, right alongside her. And then she realized that there had always been a cook inside her. She just had never been in a condition and circumstances that allowed her to express that. And so it was really that sort of a displacement as a result of immigration that allowed her to realize that there had always been a cook inside her. And she flourished from there. We have uh, two clips for Marcella Hazan. And uh, the first one is from 2013, and she's talking with an, another famous person from the food world, Mark Bittman, longtime New York Times food writer. Uh, this is uh, just 45 seconds, but we'll get to see and hear her. You remember, you are too young maybe, but Craig Claiborne? No, I remember. Yes, okay. remember. And uh, because uh, he called one day and... Uh, I could not understand a word what he was saying. Because my English was like this. And so I, I invited for lunch. Because Vitor was coming for lunch all the time. Very Italian way, you see. Mm. And so he wrote a big article. And uh, it came from there. So there again, Craig Claiborne in a big article. What did it do for her career? Oh, yes. It uh, just opened so many doors for her because at that point she had been uh, teaching Italian cooking uh, to some American housewives uh, she knew. And I believe this was uh, in 1969 when she began those classes. And so it was the early 1970s when she got that call that she just mentioned from Craig Claiborne who said that he was interested in uh, visiting her and having lunch with her and Victor and, uh, you know, feasting on a meal that she prepared for them. And after that uh, article came out, she found herself flooded with so many prospective students, excuse me, who wanted to take her class and really learn from her. And so many other doors opened um, up for her after that. Uh, She... A year later, I believe, got a call from Peter Mulman, who is an editor at Harper and Row, who asked if she had ever considered writing a cookbook about Italian cooking. And she responded, no, because I can't speak English more, no much less write in it. And uh, it was her husband, Victor, who persuaded her to take on the project. And that became 1973's uh, The Classic Italian Cookbook. And she would write many, many more uh, Italian cookbooks uh, during her lifetime. Uh, She died, uh, you know, just a few years ago. uh, And uh, she really became the authority on Italian cooking for so many American home cooks. And I I would argue that she's probably the most well-known of the seven figures uh, whom I have written about in this book. And yet she presents an interesting wrinkle for my overall thesis, which is that she is someone who people may perceive as difficult, uh, which is, uh, to my mind, a kind of sexist dog whistle usually uh, used to describe women. Uh, Yet, in spite of that, uh, she was really able to succeed and burr her way into uh, American cultural memory. Her partnership with her husband, Victor, was essential to uh, her work. And that's the other clip that we have. It's just 36 seconds long. And it is from a talk at Google in 2008, uh, where he talks about his wife's cooking. It was all always the taste of home because wherever we were, the cooking that we responded to was not chef's cooking. It was not professional cooking. It was always the cooking of somebody's home. 
And I think that is what distinguishes Marcella's uh, work. It is not chef-inspired, it's not chef-related. It is a cooking that it is family cooking, which we think of as the ultimate step in the ladder of cooking. Mike, we chose that cook because that clip, excuse me, because it really emphasizes preservation of culture. Totally. Uh, what Marcello was so committed to was honoring the labor of home cooks in Italy and bringing that sort of knowledge into the American home. For example, with her a sequel to her debut, uh, which was published in 1978, uh, she, what she did was she essentially traveled around Italy with a tape recorder, like some, you know, really intrepid journalist, and she recorded uh, the recipes of so many uh, home cooks in Italy. And what she really wanted to do was correct this misperception that so many Americans may have had in that era, that Italian cooking was just, you know, pasta in a puddle of red sauce or spaghetti and meatballs, you know, or some dishes that Marcello herself did not even recognize as uh, someone who had grown up in Italy. And the way to uh, correct those misunderstandings was to honor the labor of home cooks as she did and not really uh, aspire towards any sort of restaurant cooking. So the last, <clears throat> excuse me, last profile, we have about 15 minutes left in our, our conversation, <clears throat> is one for whom cooking and publishing about cooking was completely political act, and that's Najme Batmanglij. Can you tell me her story? Totally. So Najme Batmanglij was uh, born in Iran, uh, yet around the time of the Iranian Revolution in 1979, she had to flee because she realized that the country had become a place that she could no longer recognize. So she initially uh, fled to France, where uh, some family members had lived in the past, uh, yet after making a home for herself for a few years there, uh, specifically in a village called Vance, uh, you know, she had a child there and, uh, you know, she had a husband whom she had met in Iran. Uh, she realized that that might not be the most hospitable place for her to raise two brown children because she had another child on the way at that point. And as a result, in the early 1980s, she realized that perhaps she would have an easier time in a place like America, specifically in Washington, D.C., which she felt was a truly multicultural city uh, that had such a diverse representation of people from different races and backgrounds. Uh, yet during her time in France, one thing that was uh, quite nice about uh, you know her living there was that she did get to indulge in her love of cooking a lot, uh, so much that she was able to write a French-language cookbook about Iranian cooking uh, called Ma Cuisine d'Iran, and that was published uh, just around the time that she left for America. Uh, yet when she got to America, she realized that she wanted to write another cookbook, this time you know, in the English language and perhaps more ambitious than her French-language debut. And as a result, what she did was she sent out so many query letters to uh, different publishers in America for this cookbook uh, on Iranian food. And that was around the time when you know, the revolution, of course, still loomed large in the American minds, but the Iran hostage crisis, for example, uh, also cast such a long shadow. And as a result, after she sent out all of those letters, she got either polite rejections or absolute silence. And my understanding and her understanding was that, you know, publishing an Iranian cookbook in that time was just anathema to most major publishers. 
And so instead what she did was, you know, she was discouraged for a sec. And then she said, you know what? I, along with my husband, Muhammad, we are going to begin our own publishing house and we're going to publish this cookbook in the English language. And that's exactly what they did. They took the right classes. They got the right resources. They pulled the uh, enough capital uh, to begin their own publishing house. And they put out uh, Food of Life, uh, which was her English language debut uh, in the mid-1980s. And now uh, many American home cooks may recognize that as a tremendously important work. And the uh, tome on Iranian cooking uh, in America for American home cooks. Yet she faced so many challenges. She essentially, you know, what I see in her story is someone who tried to navigate traditional food publishing and realized that it did not have room for her for largely political reasons or from what, you know, I gather political reasons. And so instead she worked outside the constraints of that system to make a name for herself. And now she's widely respected, especially in the food establishments. Yet, you know, for that to happen, she essentially had to circumvent uh, that whole system that should have been designed to accommodate her. So uh, her story is really tragic in some ways, yet it's also triumphant. And here she is in 2013, in her own words, talking about Persian cooking and culture. We Iranians in exile, we do not have an umbrella of religion or government. The only umbrella we have is culture. Persian food has this tremendous possibility. And and I I think to me, of course I'm biased, to me, Persian food is a mother of Mediterranean food. (laughs) To me, To me, Persian food influenced all school of cooking. How was she able to successfully market a a self-published book in the age before the Internet? Oof, it it, uh, involved a lot of labor that I cannot imagine as someone who's very much a child of the Internet. Uh, You know, these details didn't quite uh, squeak their way into the book, but it involved a lot of, uh, you know, finding uh, numbers of people in the Iranian diaspora uh, through uh, books like uh, the Yellow Pages or White Pages uh, or documents that, you know, might <laughs> might seem so foreign to me as someone who was born in 1992 and just sending out so many letters to those people, urging them to support this book financially in some way. And it was a lot of that sort of uh, bootstrapped mentality that's uh, allowed this book to really find an audience slowly but surely. Uh, you know, that book was out in the mid-1980s, yet it wasn't until the early 1990s when uh, the food media really started to pay attention to it and really started to pay attention to Najmier. And it was only then that, you know, she started to get profiles in places like the Washington Post or publications like the New York Times, for example, uh, really uh, began to give her some real estate in uh, their pages. But it took a lot of work and effort on her and Muhammad's part. A, a line that struck me from her chapter is that <clears throat> cooking and publishing was her gesture of resistance to the mullahs who had transformed her country. Right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, in talking to Najmier for so long and spending so many hours with her, I got the sense that around the time of the Iranian revolution, there was so much freedom that she had known from her youth that had just very suddenly disappeared. And one aspect of that culture that was at great risk of erosion was 
cuisine and cooking and home cooking that had been such a vital part of her childhood. And she realized too that raising her sons in America, you know, would mean that they may never be able to set foot in Iran and taste and experience the same kind of gustatory pleasures that were such a vital part of her upbringing in Iran. And so she wrote this book because she wanted her sons to have those experiences in some way and preserve that even if they could not physically travel to Iran because of political circumstances. And I found that so touching. Uh, she began writing this book as a love letter to her sons. It just so happened that it took off in a really enormous way. In addition to the seven profiles of immigrant women, you do have a chapter on Julia Child. What was the point you were trying to make by including that? Oh, yes, totally. Uh, you know, this didn't happen until the second draft of my book because uh, my marvelous editor, Melanie Tortoroli, said, you know, it's fascinating how Julia Child hovers as a sort of presence over so many of these chapters. She's a character in some of them, uh, you know, in the stories of other women. Uh, she's kind of a point of comparison as if, you know, uh, Marcella Hazan is the Julia Child of uh, Italy, for example. And so she urged me to write an essay uh, that would really examine the privileges that uh, Julia Child carried uh, that allowed her to rise to such prominence. And so uh, I wanted to write a brief essay just examining the advantages that she did possess that uh, allowed her to rise in that way. And what I concluded is that the fact that she was a white American woman allowed her to become this ambassador for French cooking in America quite easily beginning in the 1960s. Yet there may have been other talents who were obscured as a result of the size of her celebrity. And she herself often thought about this because she wrote in her memoir, for example, about how she lamented that one of her good friends with whom she had uh, collaborated on Master of the Art of French Cooking in 1961, uh, whose name was Simone Simcabec, you know, she had all the ingredients, uh, no pun intended, to become a star. Uh, yet in spite of that, uh, she was unable to, perhaps because uh, she was French and Julia Child was American. Child herself was aware of those privileges that she carried, That yet I feel as though so many dominant narratives surrounding her stardom do not quite acknowledge those advantages, and I wanted to reorient readers in some way, uh, yet I have tremendous love and respect for Julia Child, who doesn't? <laughs> and I hope that comes across uh, when people read the book as well. If uh, today's ethnic cooks and chefs stand on the shoulders of some of the women that you profiled and others like them, what is the landscape like for today for people from around the world who want to be in the food marketplace in the United States? Oh, uh, I would say it is still challenging. And uh, there might be increased uh, public awareness of those very challenges. Uh, last year saw many uh, you know, public upheavals at prominent food publications that really exposed the inequities that are embedded in the industry, specifically when it comes to race and class and gender. Uh, so I do think that it is still a, a quite a difficult space for people from marginalized communities, let's say, to really make a name for themselves. That said, I do see a lot of hope when I look towards independent creators, women like Najmier, for example, who are working outside the confines of the system uh, to really make an impact. And, you know, over the past year, especially as a result of the pandemic and those aforementioned upheavals, uh, I've seen uh, the proliferation of so many independent creators uh, in the food space who are not, uh, you know, kind of 
walking this traditional path uh, that you could argue I myself have, uh, you know, also walked to someone who pursued getting uh, the right recognition from awards bodies, for example, and through that, you know, reaching the audiences that they want to reach and uh, working for their own communities. What I find so inspiring about a story like Najmi's is that she began writing in America because she wanted to write a love letter to her sons and she also wanted to reach others in the Iranian diaspora. And I find that aspirational, this idea that you can find a lot of fulfillment and make a living writing for people within your own community. And so I would advise anyone who belongs to a younger generation who's looking to break into the industry to understand that that too is a viable path and you don't necessarily have to get uh, you know certain awards uh, for your work to matter. And what has the rise of social media done for this generation that these women didn't have as an advantage? Uh, it has definitely allowed that very audience that I was just talking about to exist. Uh, you know, so many of uh so many of the most talented creators working in the food space, uh, they do not uh, necessarily have access to the visibility that comes with, say, having a devoted publicist, for example, who can uh, push them in front of the press in some way. And so social media is kind of the uh, next best route for them uh, to really gain a sort of audience and visibility that otherwise not easily come to them. And so uh, I think that is one of the few boons of uh, social media. Uh, there are many uh, negative aspects of social media as well, but I won't go into those. <laughs> as you begin your book tour and talking about this book, what are the kinds of conversations that you hope will happen for people who learn of your work? Oh, yes. Well, I do hope, first of all, all that... Uh, well, you know, I, I know that so many people will pick up this book and say, yeah, I really want to know the story of how America became this so-called melting pot uh, of different cultures and cuisines, you know, a place where you can get Mexican cooking on one block and then you get Indian cooking on the next and then Jamaican cooking on the next one after that. Yet I want my readers to understand that there is so much struggle embedded in that wonderful reality for consumers. And you see that struggle in the stories of each of these women, and we should honor that struggle as much as possible. So there, that's the main thing. There seems to be many more stories, the ones that ended up on the cutting room floor. Do you see this as a possible series? I do, yeah. But I also do hope that some other writers pick up the slack. You know, like I was saying earlier, Susanna, I came to this industry so unexpectedly. And in my work as a professor at NYU, especially, you know, teaching food journalism, I come across so many incredible young writers who have such passion for the topic at hand and they've got the chops they're much more talented and more hardworking than i am and so i do hope that moving forward i can do whatever i can with my small very limited power and influence to make sure that they those really talented writers who are younger than me do not have the same barriers to access uh that I had to work around, essentially. Uh, and I would love to see them write these stories because there's a lot of talent out there. Maya Xen's new book is called Tastemakers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America. Thank you for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast, so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. 
Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 